Hello and welcome to another edition of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with my co-host, who is looking mighty fine today, I might add, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how's it going? Hey, Sean, you look fantastic as well. I mean, I don't want to say it's fashion day here at Mastering Dungeons, but I mean, oh yeah, look at that D&D shirt. That is sweet. I am wearing a D&D t-shirt. That's great. Yep. I am not, but I should be. Um, you know, uh, I, I feel like I should throw in a burk or two right around now. Yeah. But, but I'm getting ahead of us. We're going to review a Planescape adventure today. We're, we're going to be bashers today, apparently, <laughs> if, if, if I'm using that correctly. Because we are. Chant. That's right. We, we are going to be reviewing a adventure anthology from the days of second edition. Uh, it is the Great Modron March Adventure Anthology for our second edition, Planescape. So we're going to be getting into Planescape, getting into that adventure specifically. But first, as we always do, we're going to answer some viewer. Viewer? No one's watching this. Listener. Uh, listener mail. And then get into some news and commentary. So on Twitter, Doug Palmer asked the following very good question. Thoughts on combating D&D inflation by just downgrading all listed coin rewards in adventures by one type. So 10 gold pieces would be 10 silver pieces. 10 silver pieces would be 10 copper pieces. What are some pros and cons of this? Uh, And I'm not the best person to answer this because I was trying to think back the last time that I played or ran a campaign where coins mattered after about third level and the Mm -hmm. only one i can think of is the acquisitions incorporated adventure because you use that money to make changes to your uh franchise franchise and and do things that way i was gonna say the same thing sean yeah okay so so maybe we're not the best ones to talk about that but we can talk about what oh go ahead I was just saying, some of it is depends on sort of the edition you're playing because mm-hmm. if and and what you you know I think the first question is what are your characters doing with the money right mm-hmm. uh, like in third edition there was all sorts of like buying magic items upgrading magic items uh, uh, creating magic items and you needed all that money for that right uh, in fifth edition any wizard who's playing by the rules needs money because mm-hmm. that's all your your transcribing spells. Uh, in Adventures League, in fact, that can be a struggle for a character to keep up with the written rules mm-hmm. and have enough gold to do that. While the rest of the characters, you know, all they're doing is buying potions, maybe, right? And so that's where kind of like, what what, what are the problems? And the problems are probably edition-specific and campaign-specific. So you almost mm-hmm. have to go back to that and say, you know, what are they buying and, and, and why? Like, why is that a problem? Um, in general, I don't have the problem because what I tend to do is sort of what you see in Acquisitions Incorporated. I give them huge ways to spend their money, to do big things, right? Buy a base, um, change the way that poverty works in your town, right? Like things like that, that then soak up just tons of that gold. Then you can give them as much as you want because they naturally are going to feel excited to use it up. Right. And as Teo said in previous editions where magic items had actual gold piece values that you could buy and sell if your DM so, uh, so wanted, that's not even really a thing in fifth edition. I mean, you can place a value on it based on the, the the tier 
of the magic item, but even then it's not like there's a huge list. And yeah. I, I'm I'm glad of that separation because mm-hmm. you know for me that's one less thing that as the DM I need to worry about. Uh, I'm at the point in my life where I'm very busy and I do like running D and D, but I don't want to sit down and have to worry about this 5,000 gold that I, that the adventure gives or that I'm putting into the adventure and what it might mean to the power level of the party. Um, where there's a huge disconnect too is sort of in the economy of the world versus the economy of the game, right? If a, if a peasant, if a farmer, if mm. if if a manual laborer in your D and D world earns, you know, one gold piece a month, characters walking into town with a hundred thousand gold pieces can, you know, change the economy <laughs> of the world yeah. quite easily. And you you also don't want that. So it's it's something that I think the less we rely upon gold as a mechanic for uh, character abilities and as a mechanic to change story. And we, we leave it on a level of what, what are we really playing this adventure for? Is it, is it because we want to do bookkeeping? Uh, And if so, great. If so, then we need to delve down into that. But if not, then it's best to hand wave most of it and, and give, large goals that the characters are saving up for that will affect the story uh, and affect their characters, but not to the point where it's changing your campaign. Yeah. 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 So that whole, you know, downgrading the coin value could work, but that's going to be specific to your campaign. And again, it depends on what they're saving up for. If you want to say to accomplish a 10th as much, then that could work. But probably I would just look at what they can spend their money on and make that more exciting and less game balancing, game game breaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what the what the most expensive thing in the player's handbook specifically is that affects the game on a mechanical level. And it's probably what, full plate or plate armor? Uh, uh, I think it's buying a horde of goats each at one gold. There you go. <laughs> the, the infamous <laughs> goat trample attack that druids I, employ. Uh, I have had campaigns where we purchased goats and caused trouble with them. So that's, I, I've also purchased a chicken is a great buy in the trouble causing category. True. True. You could do lots of things with a chicken. <laughs> don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> and let's move on. And we'll move on from there into news. So uh, lots of, lots of good stuff uh, happening in the last week or so. The first one is monsters of the multiverse the solo version is now out in the wild. You could have purchased it, purchased it as part of the larger gift box, but now it is out on its own. What does it include? Well, it includes 250 monsters, updates to the monsters that are, uh, are supposed to make spellcasting easier for DMs to run, uh, giving many monsters more damage and resilience and improving the organization of the stat blocks. There's also an amalgamation of the playable races that are currently in the game, bringing them all into one book and updating them. And the changes to the lore, including the removal of some lore, the addition of other lore, with the goal of making the lore focus on the D&D multiverse rather than any one particular world. And I think that's been a big part of the discussion, right? Because 
the older books that follows in Mordenkainen's have these big, rich sections on the Blood War or what a Beholder Lair is like, or any number of things like that. And all of that is gone. Yep. First they routed it, which was fine, and then they have removed it completely. And what you now have is just the lore around the sort of player character parts, right? Yep. And, and that is an interesting decision because it makes you wonder, is this lore that has been removed, like, say, Beholders and Dreams and all that, is that gone? Or is it still the 5th edition default? for 5e like it's not so it's not clear what's intended by it mm -hmm. yeah and we've got a question about canon later in the uh mm -hmm. later in our news section so we, we could probably get into a little bit more of this then yeah. but you know the book's out there and if yeah. you are are so inclined you can uh you can look at it uh dnd &D beyond has now officially become part of wizards of the coast uh to celebrate Wizards of the Coast and D&D Beyond are offering two free books to all registered D&D Beyond users. Uh, the first is the starter adventure Lost Mine of Fandelver. That will be unlocked and uh, available for eternity to all new and existing D&D Beyond users. Eternity, eh? Like for eternity, that. or so I've heard. Um uh, the second thing that is uh, being given away for free will only be given away for free until midnight on March on May 26th. So I think May 26th is a Thursday and this show drops on a Thursday. So you probably have until midnight tonight to get your free copy of acquisitions incorporated, uh, which Teos and I worked on. So, yeah. you know, if you haven't had a chance to get that, now is your chance to to see the wackiness that uh, minds can get up to when they they when they're not being chaperoned by adults. Yeah, and if the process for getting it is not obvious, I covered it in a video on my YouTube channel, so you can see exactly how easy it is to get it. I also covered we talked about um, recently the the free uh, roll twenty Scarlet mm -hmm. Citadel excerpt so that's also in there how you can get that free if you haven't done that yet we're all free about stuff. giving you the free stuff that's right mm -hmm. or at least explain to you how to get free <laughs> stuff uh speaking of not free stuff mm -hmm. magic the gathering is now preparing to launch its second D, D card set i'm gonna let teos take you through this one yeah so this is a commander legend set so the full name is this giant mouthful, Commander Legends Dungeons & Dragons Battle for Baldur's Gate. Whew. What does it all mean? Uh, so this is cool for D&D fans because it's, once again, D&D and Magic the Gathering. So if you want to see, like, amazing art of D&D stuff, if you want to, like, dip your toe into playing Magic the Gathering, this is a super fun, friendly set. Uh, their previous set, the first one, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, was hugely popular. It was the highest selling set at that time, um, or until that time. Um, and this is the Commander format, which is a multiplayer format where you can sort of do things two ways. One is you can make a 100-card deck. Every card must be unique. So that kind of in and of itself is fun because it's a different strategy. You can't do like four of a card. Um, or you can do it in a draft format where you take turns picking two cards out of a pack at a time until you have your full deck. 
Um, and that is a neat kind of casual way to play that tends, you know, it can be less competitive and more social, plus it's multiplayer. So you're sometimes sort of taking turns, ganging up on somebody and then, you know, going to the whoever's strongest, basically beating them down. Um, and so that can be a fun way to jump into magic play. I like that kind of draft format. I find it as a casual player. The set has a bunch of mechanics that come from previous sets, uh, like Adventures in Forgotten Realms. It uses a D20 and, and not in the typical magic way, but more of a <laughs> D&D way, right? Like you're really making almost a check. Um, you delve into dungeon cards, this time with a new mechanic called initiative that decides who can go into the dungeon. Progressing through the dungeon gives you benefits, which is kind of cool. And there's a special dungeon card. There are adventure cards that actually appeared earlier. Perfect name to bring into a D&D set. And then background cards that can change like what color your card is because you're saying that your commander is of this particular background. <laughs> and so the way it works, right, with a commander, you have this powerful commander card, then all of your deck. So what this allows you to do is if it's almost like you're making a character, right? You've got your, your choose your commander, then you give them a background, and then you go into the dungeon, right? And you've got your spells and all that. So it's, it's kind of a fun concept that they've done here. There are 360 unique base cards, and uh, there's some pretty neat cards in the set, Sean. Yeah, like Elminster, Alondo the Seer, uh, the Gods of Murder and Death, Baal and Merkel, Tasha, uh, Duke Alder Ravenguard from uh, Baldur's Gate, an Elderbrain, Volo, Minskin Boo, a Nautilite Ship, Undercity, you look up on the Tarrasque, and so on, and so on, and so on. I mean, uh, and the most important one, a legendary flump called mm. Glunch the Bestower. I mean, that is that is amazing. Uh, you can hear all about this deck uh, or this card set by going on the uh, listen to the latest Dragon Talk podcast, which also has a feature where Dan Dillon talks about the flump, which is amazing. Nice. Um, if you want these cards, there are a lot of ways to get them. You can buy commander decks which will come with a commander card and ready-to-play deck of cards. All set, ready to play. Or you can buy set boosters if you want to collect the cards. That's the best way to get uh, as many of them as possible. Buy the set booster boxes. It's not cheap. Um, collector boosters are not as great for collecting the cards, but if you want weird like art cards, then that's your way to go. Draft boosters are meant to support the draft play. That's that whole idea of making the deck playable while you're pulling the cards. Uh, and then there's some pre-release packs and bundles that are just kind of fun things. Like if you want a shiny D20 and that kind of stuff, then that's a nice way to just dip your toe into it. So, yeah, we'll see how this helps the D&D game, right? Yeah, that, that's a whole lot of D&D uh, &D Magic the Gathering crossover stuff there. And based on this information, we have another question from Twitter. Uh, J. Scott Garibi asks, I love to hear what what your take uh, is on what's happening with these Magic the Gathering cards from the perspective of D&D &D canon. Are they adding or subtracting canon or are they, you know, beside canon? Hmm. Uh, yeah. What do you think? Well, I think that I should just be in trouble with everything I'm going to say today. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to get this out of the way first. And, and I'm going to say I don't care about canon. Uh, obviously I do care about Canon, but I don't care about Canon, uh, as, as a designer, I need to care about Canon to the, to the, to the, uh, extent that what I'm creating 
may be adding to canon, subtracting from canon. I need to be aware of that. As a player and as a game master, I could care less about what these cards are in terms of D&D. As far as I'm concerned, they are they are Magic the Gathering cards. They do not affect my D&D game at all. And no matter what they say about any of the NPCs and creatures that were just said, doesn't doesn't affect me in, in, in any way. So I love canon, um, even while understanding that it's got limits. I mean, I'm almost the, the, you know, the inverse of everything you said, though I mm-hmm. acknowledge everything you said, and, and certainly canon can be harmful and problematic, and it's totally awesome when people just ignore it. That's fine. But I, I like it. I'm the kind of person who, it's almost like the exploration pillar. Like when I read products, I want to find the canon and add it together in my brain and have it all make sense, even though I know these are all fictitious works by imperfect people who haven't necessarily read the other fictitious works. Mm-hmm. But so what is it to me, this set, what it does is it mo- more than anything else. I, I don't think it touches too much. Canon has too much of a Canon impact, but what it does is it clearly this battle for Baldur's gate is based on the video game, right? With the mind flares, uh, being there and there's not a Lloyd card. And so it's this idea of that plot that is in the video game, which someday we'll see when it actually really comes out. <laughs> Um, so it's sort of acknowledging that, which I guess is sort of saying that that happens, right? That that does happen in, in the world, this, you know, nautiloids flying over Baldur's Gate, which depending on how you look at it could be pretty impactful though. (laughs) Anything that's ever involved a spell jammer and a city has been completely non-impactful to canon. Like it's one of those things that somehow Waterdeep has spell jammers. And nobody knows of them or sees them, and it will never impact you unless you're literally flying in a spell jammer, right? Like it's just, it's canon that just gets flipped on when needed and, and otherwise never there. So I don't think any of this will be uh, very impactful. That, I think it's a, a, just a minor link. Um, the previous set had things like Morden Canaan, but that's also been already in canon. I think the most interesting canonical thing to me is we know due to Dragon Magazine that there are connections between the Forgotten Realms and Earth. Mm-hmm. We know due to the new take that 5e and Magic the Gathering have that you can get from the Forgotten Realms to the Magic the Gathering planes. Mm-hmm. That means that you can get from Earth to the Magic the Gathering planes. There you go. So have fun with that. That's right. That's right. And <laughs> here's a little secret. You could have done that anyway without, <laughs> without this. In, now in, it's in your own in your own games true story oh, mm. so there we go thank you uh for that question uh so what does the upgrade to volos and morden canons mean to the adventurers league mm. we have a yawning portal blog that states that dms do not need to update monsters but you can choose to do so if the monster changed between volo or morning canons and monsters of the multiverse Players, however, must upgrade if they use a race or other content from the older books that have been updated in Monsters of the Multiverse. Uh, and gamers being gamers, this is upsetting some people uh, who feel like they are being forced to buy the new book. And okay. Yep. Yeah, it's it's hard to... I don't know. I, I my. Some often this has been the policy, right? You must use the new version. But I think that in a lot of times, in, in the times prior where this has happened, the new version was substantially different and was sort of fixing problems. 
Mm-hmm. So you, of course, had to use the new version. Right. Now, I don't know that there's any real balance in anything major. You know, none of these were broken or problematic. So I don't know that it was really necessary to require somebody to use the new version. But, you know, or maybe to have given them a time frame when they can do it. I, I don't know. But it's it's also, I don't think it's the biggest thing ever. It's not very hard to... You know, ask a friend what the new rules are for your Triton character or whatever your you know, yeah Triton character or whatever your Wanti. You know, you can you can someone can get you that info without requiring you to buy the book. It's not the end of the world. It's my opinion. Yeah, and like I said, my filter is completely broken today, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to comment one way or another. I hope that the people who play Adventures League enjoy Adventures League. Yeah, and if fun. if you don't enjoy Adventures League. I hope you don't play Adventures League and find another way to play. Yeah, it's uh, well said. Don't don't let your brain get so caught up in the mechanics of the rules or whatever that you forget to just sit down at the table and have fun like you always had. And like you probably would if this was your first day doing so. True story. And speaking of good times, DM David, who is well known as a favorite of ours for his very smart blogs on D&D history and the underpinnings of 5e, has released an adventure called the Battle Walker from the Abyss. His first DM's Guild product, David can't do things halfway, is a level (laughs) 17 to 20 fantastic adventure. So tell us about this adventure, Teos. Well, I can can read the blurb here. I've just started looking at it this morning. A wizard's simulacrum pleas for help stopping his demon-corrupted original... There's a great concept, right? I'm the simulacrum. Yeah. My original has been corrupted by demons. Uh, from gaining a walking weapon capable of leveling cities, which looks like a giant spider, by the way. This quest takes characters across the abyss to the market town of Broken Reach, to the demon goddess Zugmoy's fungal plain, and to a confrontation in an iron fortress over, over a lake of molten iron. It's just perfect, and it, it yeah. has some little hat tips to... Things like uh, the the end of the Drow series, you know, where, where there's this sort of spider fortress, it has that kind of feeling to it. Yep. Um, mixes role playing and senses shattering combat, and it is. This is based on an adventure that he had shared on his blog that he used as a submission to the Adventurers League when they were looking for high level play authors. Mm-hmm. And how he, and he talks about on his the latest entry in his blog about how this adventure came to be and how he. Um, thought about sort of what he'd submitted and what worked well and what didn't, and then how to make that part of this uh, part of the key adventure. But it is, it is a quite fantastic premise and which I love. I mean, when I play high level things like this, I would rather they be really super interesting, wild concepts. And this, this delivers looks great. Yeah. David, um, submitted a chapter to the, uh, monster grimoire book from ghostfire gaming the chapter on playing intelligent monsters intelligently which the feedback on has been amazing some people are like this is the best part of the book this uh-huh. this the, the whole book is is uh you know worth the money just to read this article so i cannot wait i i have the adventure i have not had a chance to read it yet but i want to see how um he can set up these high 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 level uh, encounters and and uh, challenges, and yeah. see what what comes of it. So you can check that out on the DMs Guild. Again, it is called Battle Walker from the Abyss. 
And the last bit of news I wanted to share was the Aurora Age of Desolation Kickstarter is continuing. Um, we're close to $300,000. And by the, when this show drops, we should be there and still have about 21 days left. Uh, so if you want to give that a look, you can just go to kickstarter.com and search for Aurora, A-R-O-R-A, Age of Desolation. Thank you to everyone who supported it so far. And if you're interested in a new and different setting and a new way to play 5e, you can give it a glance. It looks excellent. I am hoping. I'm a fan. Check it out, folks. Sweet. Any other news you want to share before we get into our main topic? No, no. Uh, well, I will be dropping episode one of Success in RPGs today. So you can Sweet. head to alphastream.org, and from there you'll end up at my YouTube channel. And uh, hopefully it's helpful to people. We're going to be talking about how you define success, which is a good question. Sweet. Yeah, you, Your five-minute intro was riveting. As it was, so I can't wait for the uh, the first full episode. Thank you. All right, so our main topic today, we are reviewing the classic Planescape adventure, The Great Modron March. So this was an adventure that I've heard referenced many, many, many times. Yeah. But I never read it. Same. Uh, so when you suggested that we look it over, I was very excited. I love the the lore behind Modrons. I've used it in many adventures that I've, that I've created, or at least used Modrons as a, as a, you know, as a really interesting component of a setting or of an adventure. So when I picked up this adventure, which was published in 1997 and written by Monty Cook and Colin McComb, it was really the first official second edition Planescape stuff that I'd seen. I never, I was out of D&D by the time the Planescape box set was released and didn't come back in until third edition. So, you know, that was right in that sort of nine-year window when I wasn't playing. Uh, and, wow, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> That's one word to describe it, Burke. It is interesting. Uh, and I still, other, you know, I've, I've looked at third, fourth edition Planescape content. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I still never, uh, I even like fiddled around with the, the video game, the Planescape video game. Yeah. Uh, so I had a, a slight feel for, for the setting, but not really a, a deep knowledge of it. Uh, so the adventure itself is 129 pages called a collection of adventures in which player characters of all levels encounter the Modrons as they traverse the great ring. And um, maybe... Sean, let's just pause and say, Planescape is so wild, it feels kind of more 70s than 80s in some ways in its approach. You have this fantastic art, much of it done by Tony DiTerlisi, that's different mm -hmm. than any of the fantasy art you would have had. You have the idea that Sigil is this, you know, hub world that links to all the other planes and... From the city of doors, you can launch any kinds of fantastic adventures. And the premise of Planescape is that you can be any level and be based here, right? And have these just wild adventures. And Sigil's the kind of place where you might see a pit fiend having a coffee with a solar mm -hmm. because this is sort of a neutral ground that there are reasons why everybody comes together. And by virtue of doing all this, it ends up being just a, a very 
sometimes it's silly, right? And sometimes it's very serious. It, it, it's a multi-tonal type of place. Um, the word multiverse is used in this adventure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, ahead of its 5e time. Yeah. Uh, there is also this whole thing around the factions. So there are these different entities that you can join and, uh, and the, that colors life and the idea that there are all these factions vying for power across the plains, behaving in very different ways than they would when you're on a particular prime material plane. And then to make this salient, all of the planescape books use this language. Mm -hmm. And so this entire adventure is written as if it's talking to you directly in planescape can't, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so it calls you a Burke and it talks about the, here's the real chant and, and all kinds of expressions like right. that that come out of the setting. Yeah. Which can be a little annoying and can be fun both. Right. Maybe. It, 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 um, it reminded me as I read the adventure and I don't know if we mentioned this when we talked about the uh, spell jammer adventure is that it relies a lot on the box set to fill in information that you otherwise aren't given in the adventure itself. So without having that, that knowledge, that background, being steeped in that, uh, it can be a little unsettling. Uh, yeah. And reading the adventure also reminded me of the question and the discussion that we had in the past about an adventure being entertaining when you read it versus it being useful as you run it. And I think we'll come back to that <laughs> <laughs> refrain a few times, uh, perhaps. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was I was going to dig into uh, what's actually in the adventure itself. If you if you had another, okay, cool. Uh, so there are uh, eleven chapters that cover the eleven adventures. These adventures, as a whole, uh, cover characters levels one to ten, and they make up a majority of the the book. There is a longish introduction then a very short prologue, a very short epilogue, and then an appendix with you know some additional rules that, that you will need. So we're going to sort of break it down by chapter here and as well as talk about it as a whole. So the, and I, I, I need to give the caveat here. I am probably going to come off sounding like <laughs> a grumpy old man and say things that I will regret. Writing D&D writing &D adventures, writing any RPG adventures is hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is also a product of its time and of its addition and of its spell, uh, spell jammer, its uh, planescape roots. Mm -hmm. So as I talk about all of these things, keep that in mind, because a lot of what I'm saying falls back to sort of uh, an understanding that one or more of those things is at play. Yeah, I mean, really, all of them are play. Uh, I mean, I think listeners know that you are a good person, Sean, uh, and and hopefully they think so of me as well. It, it is, it is hard not to criticize this adventure because it is so bound in its era, mm -hmm. as we're going to see in so many different ways, while also having some really neat aspects to it and some fantastic ideas. You know, one of the things we often complain about is the idea that fantastic places are often really boring. And there are a few scenes where that's true here, um, a few of the adventures. But in general, it tries hard to to make the planes feel good, right? And one of the things this does, because the Modrons are marching across all the planes, the outer planes, 
um, you get introduced to those. And so they try to make these places yeah. interesting. They don't always succeed, um, but, uh, but they're generally not just, you know, Wayne's coding in the backdrop, right? You, you, yeah. you are, you are seeing, you are interacting with the plane and what it's in its wild ways in some way. Yeah. And one of the things I thought as I was internally ranting to myself was that this was written, like I said, in 1997 and, for all that, some of the things I'm, I was reading, I was like, this has been done so much better so many more times. This may be the first time that some of these things were really done. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 I, I, I'm not a historian enough uh, to, to know if it was, but a lot of these things are really great ideas and they may not have had the rules set behind them to pull them off in a way that our technology rules technology now could do so. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about all yeah. of this as we yeah. go forward. So the introduction, eight pages that give a background on the great Mojan March, Planescape Adventures in general, 2E D&D stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, it's all important information for people that are going to be running this adventure. As a, union, as a user manual, it is a hot flaming mess. Um, there are things all over the place. As soon as you think, okay, now I'm going to learn about Planescape Adventures, they jump in and talk about like D&D 2E mechanics that you need to deal with. And then you're like, okay, now that I've almost got that. Well, now they're talking about the Great Modron March again, and they're jumping all over the place. Uh, if you are trying to make a campaign out of these 11 distinct uh, mini adventures, it's also a mess. Uh it, it sort of says, you know, you could run this as a campaign, but we're not going to tell you how. Uh, well, it's also, it spans 10 levels of play yeah, or yeah. more. So it's sort of like, how are you possibly, you, it, it, and that's where it doesn't seem to know what it's doing, right? Is the idea to have a, a book of, hey, while you're doing your other stuff in your campaign, probably mm -hmm. a home campaign, boom. I add in one of these to add some flavor about the Modron March. And if that's the case, I think this product really fails because yeah. no one step yeah. really does that. You need to play various of these steps to get the concept of what's going on. And it clearly at the end is sort of delivering you a little bit of a carrot slash reward to yeah. say, hey, you got some vital info that's going to feed into our next product. Right. It, it's, it's really kind of bizarre. And, and each adventure... So then you think, well, maybe really the idea is that I just, I take my campaign that I'm running and I'm going to slowly, as I go across the levels of my Planescape campaign, seed these in. And that would be great, except each one will say, this adventure is particularly for characters who do X, Y, and Z. Right. And then the next one will be a totally different <laughs> right. recommendation. And you're like, well, so you didn't write this for the same party to play over time. What? Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the problem is that the the foundation of this adventure is so cool the yeah. the the string that keeps it all together is the great modron march and it is so important and it is so strange and it is so engaging that once you're into that story i i can't imagine going somewhere else what else is as enticing and as mysterious as not just the march itself but why is it happening when it's not supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
and right so this mystery is there and it's so strong and it's like oh and you know you can go off and do these few other things and then come back come back three months later to this next part uh, and all i'm thinking is no i i don't want that i want this to be a campaign and then it, it gives this is just one example of, of what we get a lot which is with a little modification by the dungeon master or the inclusion of a few side adventures perhaps from well of worlds or other published planescape products the scenarios can serve as a complete campaign on their own and i'm thinking yeah with a little modification i can create my own world uh how about a little help how about telling me how to do that because right. this is this is what I want with such a great idea behind it. And why doesn't it work in any of the obvious ways you'd think to run this, right? It, right. It doesn't work run in series because the encounters are apparently written for different characters in mind. You know, it, it's but but there are hooks, you know, and recurring villains. It's really a weird product, yeah. and uh, and I find myself thinking when I've read a bunch of these second edition books, like I feel like in the nineties and late eighties, we should have known better. Cause we, there are a lot of really good classic adventures out there mm-hmm. that did think about what to say to the odd, to the DM, right. And right. how to make a coherent whole. Like it's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And then we get a, a sidebar that I seem to see in like every adventure or every campaign setting where it says these adventures are different. You can't fight your way through all of these situations. You need to think and you need to use your witch and you need to role play. And I'm like, I think every adventure after 1982 says this, right? It's (laughs) yes. Planescape is different, but it's no different than, you know, any other thing where you don't just fight you, you think and you use role playing and you use, other you know forms of getting around problems other than combat um so you know like maybe this was the first time this was ever said but i feel like yeah and i think also that there's this strange thing where people would play 1e and basic and 2e with whatever rule set they preferred Mm -hmm. and so you almost had to i mean like this book will tell you like how to convert from 1e to 2e right like right really like why did you have to say that like the can't you just assume people are playing the current edition, but I guess they feared that they couldn't. So then maybe if you're just playing like in the world of basic, maybe you don't understand that it's not just about fighting things across rooms. But yeah, it was, it it is interesting. And and the, the other issue is that two E at least the two E that I remember didn't have a strong system for skills Mm-hmm. for for doing things outside of combat yes some spells were you know more utility than than combat but you know if you're trying to persuade someone to do something it's not like your character there was a persuasion check or intimidation check or you know survival or whatever to uh to make the check it was just like you sort of had you could have certain proficiencies i believe but those were like large scale uh like tracker or something um, there weren't checks necessarily involved. So it makes it much more difficult to fully engage that exploration and role-playing those pillars without the mechanics to support the, the gamification of, of that side of, of the game. So 
I, I, I have to remind myself because we will come up on situations in these adventures where it's like, mm-hmm. boy, you know, what would be great here, a skill challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no such thing, even though good DMS back in the day did something like that. Um, but they had to sort of make up their own rules for doing that. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of, there, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of things that can seem like open play here. But some of it is that it's almost like a it's less open or as much open play as it is a vacuum, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and while I like that things aren't closed, right? It's not like it is a forced you. Sometimes it's not a forced thing you must do. It is almost like it's just undefined, and who knows? This may be great fun at the table, or it may be quite disappointing, or it may be hand waved, and and there's nothing the adventure is doing to create a particularly engaging situation. And there is no fundamental rule mechanism Mm -hmm. to support that. So yeah, it ends up being And and then you still see things where they will say things like, this will not work when the PCs try this. And the PCs must do X or they fail. It will not work until they do this one thing. And you still Mm -hmm. see that. It's like, well, where'd your open play go when they must dance a certain way, right? You're like, okay. Yep, yep, (laughs) yep. So the uh, so what's the background of this whole story? The Great Modron March is something that happens in the Planescape multiverse every was it three hundred two hundred and eighty nine years I think um, seventeen times seventeen I did the math mm-hmm. yep two hundred eighty nine years so every two hundred eighty nine years the Modrons leave their uh, realm and they Mechanist. march yep the, of Mechanus and they march throughout the Great Ring. And then they end up coming back and everyone expects this. Everyone knows this, this happens and everyone is, you know, bet for better or for worse, cool with it. Well, the, the, uh, the March is not expected for another 150 years, but the March begins and everyone is freaking out because they're not sure why the Modrons are marching. Now Modrons of course are a super rigid. If we want to get into D and D lingo, lawful, neutral, society that runs like literally like clockwork and each of the modrons is a cog within this great machine that keeps the the multiverse moving uh in a way that can be counted on so having having the modrons be out of sorts like this worries those who like order is a great (laughs) relief to those who like chaos and, you know, otherwise people are just have their own takes on it and are trying to take advantage of it in whatever way they choose. Now, the yeah, prologue, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, one of the things I hadn't sort of understood is that this Modron March is hugely destructive. Like mm-hmm. if you have built a town where they 300 years ago marched, they will crush it possibly. And that's right. one of the scenarios in this adventure. And so you sort of realize like, oh, like this is this is a big deal and, and it's thousands of these marching things. So it's, it, it creates just all sorts of upheaval wherever they go. I thought that was, a, that's a neat, interesting concept. Um, <laughs> and with this underpinning of why is it off schedule, right? Right. So. And so we learned in the prologue, we being the dungeon master, not necessarily the players, that what happens is Primus, the, leader, the god, the highest being of the Modrons has been possessed by this evil dark force. 
And this evil dark force is going to use the Modrons to search for a talisman. So this march is being kicked off and maintained because this evil force that has uh, infected Primus wants to find this talisman. Yeah, and um, we, you know, spoilers, The this is the, the prequel to the next adventure, Dead Gods, written by Monte Cook, which also uses a sort of episodic format um, with other play taking place between episodes. And that goes into which god it is that is behind this and, and being sort of brought back, uh, as well as dealing with other dead gods that are uh, part of the sort of story. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and and at the end, the, the sort of big revelation that will come from play, if you play all of it, is learning from a Modron that Primus has died. And that's the reason why this is out of schedule. Now, you don't know who killed Primus or what mm. it entails, but theoretically then can go on to Dead Gods to yep. to play that um, if you're still interested at the end yeah. of this. Right. And and the, the other thing that... The, one of the reasons why I was slightly perturbed as I'm reading this is, you know, the last thing I talked about in my, my class was writing adventures and how things have to happen at the encounter level. No matter how great your story is, no matter what wonderful world you've built, if it's not shown on the encounter level and it's not made uh, both accessible and changeable by the characters the players aren't going to care, right? They need to interact with that at that level. And reading this was a perfect example of how players might just not care because things that are cool about the adventure are not necessarily shown or changeable at the encounter level. I feel like 2E was particularly bad about that. And it was only like, an, it was almost like a first edition had simpler stories so therefore the characters usually knew what they should know and what was interesting, what was important, because it was all relevant. Uh, 2E somehow gets into these grandiose ideas where only the DM knows what's happening right. and the players don't. And, and then I feel like then it started getting better again in like third and fourth and fifth, this understanding and, yeah. of I really should probably tell people and, the and, cool things. Yeah, and, and it might be just because of the number of new settings and new rule stuff that came out with second edition, right? One after another, after another, it's, uh, uh, what's Ravenloft and then mm. it's dark sun. And then, it, you know, and it's just spell spell jammer one after another, after another, and all this cool stuff without the sort of adventure writing technology that we learned worked or forgot worked for first edition and basic <laughs> And then remembered again for third edition, uh, how it worked. But, whew, okay, so how are we going to handle this? Let's talk about chapter one, which is the first adventure called The March Begins. Uh, so each chapter begins telling you the level range, four to six PCs, for levels one to three for this chapter. And then it gives a just the facts section. Unfortunately, a lot of times the facts are irrelevant based on what happens later. So, for example, there are preferred PCs uh, that would be playing this. So, you know, if it might say this would be good for uh, people that are good at diplomacy. Well, if unless you have a charm person spell, I don't know what being good at diplomacy means in uh, in second edition. 
it gives a factions uh, section, like what factions, because every character can be part of a faction. However, again, it might say, you know, this faction, this faction will be particularly interested in this, but then never mention that faction again or how it changes right. what what the players might do. So, you know, you might be interested being a lawful faction that this is happening, but that's all that you get in most of the adventures that I've read. And then the synopsis is a one sentence uh, description of what happens. So, you know, that's a okay. And it's important to note this place takes us, this book takes us across the plains, but you need to have the Planescape book to look Mm -hmm. it up. So like this first one will take us to Automata, the gate city of the Plain of Mechanus, and, you know, doesn't spend a lot of time telling us about it because, Mm -hmm. well, that's in the box set. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of okay with that. Uh, That was the least of my concerns. Yeah. So, well, yeah, if, as long as it still registers with the characters, right? And this mm-hmm. is where, uh, in, in this book, to me, it doesn't paint enough of a picture of what I should be seeing. And, and I mean, there's a little bit in box text, but I just, yeah, I, I want a rich experience always. So right. help me create that, right? For my I wish, I wish it had spent the time painting the picture that it did sort of narrating the story that's supposed to happen. Yeah. If it had done that, if it had spent more time giving details that are, and it does give some for sure, but not in a way that the characters can interact with. Mm-hmm. So how does this begin? The characters are new to Sigil and they have their brains squeezed <laughs> telepathically uh, until they arrive at the place where the plot hook hooks them. Yeah, it's really weird. It's like if you ro- walk in the wrong direction, you know, then your brain hurts. So you've got to right. go in this particular direction. Okay. Yep. So if you take the path that hurts your brain the least, you end up in a uh, small building where a voice tells you, sorry about that. I didn't mean to hurt you so much. I don't know how it knows that it hurt you so much, but it must know. Um, and you see a book and a cat. Now, at first, you're going to think what cleverly, you hear the voice and a cat jumps up on the table and you, and you say, did you talk to us? And the cat says, no, it wasn't me Uh, out loud. The cat says this. So, you know, that's very clever. It's actually the book that is telepathically communicating with the the characters and the book and the cat asks the characters to take them to automata, the gate city of the plane of Mechanus. Okay. Uh, The cat is a reincarnation of the former books uh, owner, Jason, And the book is also intelligent, obviously, because it has telepathy. And they want to get the book back to the book's former owner because the cat, who is a reincarnated version of Jason, had bought the book from the wizard in Automata, but died before he could pay off his debt. So he wants to get the book back because he's feeling guilty, apparently, about not paying off the debt before he died. This is the kind of thing where if you told me at the outline level, here's what I'm planning on writing, I'd say, what other ideas do you have? (laughs) Do you you have a different idea that is right? To start Um, off this adventure. Yeah. So so the players are asked, would you please take this, take the book and the cat to, to Automata? We've already figured out how to get there, so you don't have to worry about that. Now, that's what I, I want the characters to have to figure out how to get there. Right. This is like, ooh, here's some place we could have fun. No, it's like just you're there. You're there. 
Uh, and in fact, once you get there, the basically the book and the cat are the cat's not mentioned again. And the book is barely mentioned only when it has an important role to play in moving the plot forward. Uh, so that, you know, right there, it's like, I don't even know what to say, uh, but okay, here we're off. Uh, the characters then have to find this wizard Hyron based on just one clue. You know, where did he used to live? All right. So we'll go to his former office and when you get there, there are other people there who say, no, he doesn't live here anymore. Uh, we don't know where he went, but there's this tavern that he used to frequent. Maybe you can go there. So there's not really even any investigation involved. It's yeah. you're just told to go there. So then what happens at the tavern? At the tavern? <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead. The, 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 the spe- he has a magic closet uh, that, that he stays in at the Council of Order. And at the tavern, you're going to maybe be able to learn this about Mm -hmm. this closet. Right. All of which is several steps too many, I think, to hold the attention of players. Right. Right. And it's not even like at the tavern, this cool thing happens. It's just this is what you learn at the tavern. Now, when you leave the tavern, you might be followed by someone Mm -hmm. and you may be... um, approached by someone who wants to know what you're learning, but that really doesn't have a heck of a lot to do with the ongoing plot. Now, if you are being followed, uh, well, let me rephrase that. You are being followed and you have a chance to realize you're being followed by making some checks. But even if you realize you're being followed, the plot demands that when you actually find uh high run in his Warden Kanan's magnificent mansion in the closet at the Council of Order building. The other people have to show up because that's what the plot dictates. So even if you like took all these steps to not be followed, they will show up. And then you get to have a fight. Yay. All right. Okay, cool. We have combat. Uh, Except one of the bad guys is a high level wizard. So Hyron, a high-level wizard, fights this other high-level wizard, and you have to deal. Yeah, and you have to deal with sort of the lower-level thugs. Thugs, yeah. But this could take place. This fight could take place. So there's what six in your party, plus Hyron, plus the few bad guys, all taking place in a closet. Uh, You don't know how big this closet is. Morden Kanan's magnificent mansion is uh, dispelled. So Hyron is expelled from it. So you're all in a closet. And well, and that's a funny part. It sort of wastes this time saying that you might try to rush into the mansion to escape them. Right. But it's going to get dispelled anyway. And it's sort of like, well, why are we doing this? <laughs> There's all these extra steps that amount yeah. to very little. Yeah. So, so then while all this is going on in some way, shape, or form, and while this happens, the great Modron March unexpectedly begins as thousands of Modrons pour th- through the gate, uh, through this uh, gate city, and then out the other side into mm-hmm. the wild blue yonder. So everyone freaks out and the people who are attacking may stop attacking because they they uh, see what's happening. So it's all sort of a big, big mess. Um, 
the, the idea of an encounter where there is sort of a beginning, a middle and an end, and there are consequences and checks to be made and role playing to be had sort of is thrown out the window. There's, there isn't once where like a failure means anything in the long run, you could fail your way through this entire uh, event, through this entire chapter and still come out the other side, none the worse for wear. Yeah, because there there are no there are no impacts to the things you do, mm-hmm. basically, un- unless you just like pick a fight with the bad guys who are following you at the beginning. But yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, the other thing is just that like what in this is really introducing it. It's literally the only thing that happens that's relevant to the adventure is the fact that the Modron March will interrupt it. Mm-hmm. And none of it is equipping me towards caring about the Modron March in a particular way. Just It's just that I'm seeing it and I'm surprised by it. But then it's almost left to the DM to try to somehow, like, like if we were playing this in the middle of a campaign, so this thing happened, you know, and, and this is stuff that I struggled with as a DM back then, that I wouldn't know how to make the Modron March matter mm-hmm. in the intervening time frame before I'm going to launch this next adventure because I, I, n- nothing here did much. I mean, you saw that. And then I might tell the players like, oh, you hear that, you know, they are, you know, moving through to another area. And the the players would be like, why do we care? We don't understand that this is important, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Whereas if this had had been something like somebody hires you who senses a great disturbance and and mechanist come to Automata and help me understand what it is. Right. And that this, you know, I'm feeling that things are wrong, but, you know, Modrons are Modrons. You can't talk to them. And then suddenly this happens, then that would be like, whoa, right now I'm it's personally I'm linked to it personally somehow. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and having right. Having them interrupt something big is is a cool idea. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just it, it needs to be set up better. It needs to resonate more. Uh, and there needs to be something going forward that you care about, like you said, right, meeting individual modrons that you will then meet again later and can even though there is no such thing as a like close personal relationship with a modron who is who is within this this uh ecosystem you could the characters would give that modron a name even though right. it doesn't yeah, have if you were name. interacting with modrons and all of a sudden they started you know to we, we must leave and then began to like line up for the march that would be shocking right right, right. And so, right, even even if this Modron march started, and you know the characters were knocked over by some Modrons who looked at them, and there was something about the Modron that the characters noticed, and then you show them again later and later and later, making something story wise connect throughout these these adventures. Um, yeah. But we don't really see any of the characters that we've met in any of the later adventures. Uh, so there isn't too much to to hook on to. Uh, uh, there's so many. Uh, I talked about the factions. It says that the, the, the start mentions the governors as a preferred faction for this. And then the word governor never shows up again in that whole adventure. Uh, so I like good linear adventures because you can get different stories and different routes uh, from the beginning to the end, even though you know you're going to end up in the same spot. A bad linear adventure, a bad railroad adventure, is something that you're not even allowed to change. Nothing you do changes the story in any way. 
Yeah. Uh, even even the cool little you know stories that you might come up with because you interacted with someone in a certain way aren't isn't supported in this adventure. And and it's truly bad when you you can have two two you know if you were to chart out the path that the characters begin and end on mm-hmm. you can have an adventure where all along the time all along that path the players feel like oh this is awesome oh you know what we got to do next we got to do this thing and they right. follow that path and then you have another group that's like can we do this no can we do that no uh, okay and you just must be on the path mm-hmm. and that can be the exact same path but how I wrote it changes mm-hmm. whether it was super fun and felt like they were making decisions and right. how like their actions mattered or like we were just being forced to go along the way mm-hmm. and this one is really more of that latter kind of situation right even though it has these sort of openish kind of moments the mm-hmm. reality is at the end of it you must confine to this sort of um artificial path right the path mm-hmm. is it, right. it's sort of these random it's almost like we just pulled it out of our brain and just what if he sometimes came to this tavern? What if he has a closet over here? But there's nothing that that sensibly links that in a way that feels like a ha to the characters right. or that will be rewarding to them somehow. Right. And none of the choices will, will impact it in some way. And so it's just you're just going along, plodding mm-hmm. along through this, waiting for it to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so we get through chapter one. And, okay, it it wasn't strong, but at least we got it started. The Modron March is happening, so where do we go from here? Chapter two, I laughed so hard <laughs> when I saw the name of the chapter, which is called <laughs> The Unswerving Path. And I'm like, that does not bode well for this whole book, not to mention uh, this particular chapter. When you so, wrote that name without irony, right? yes. without detecting the irony. <laughs> uh, so f- this is for levels two to four characters. Uh, as I mentioned, the the ironic title uh, what do the characters have to do here? Well, they have to minimize the damage that the Modron March does as it barrels through the city uh, of Heart's Faith in Mount Celestia. And uh, so, the, the, again, it, how do the characters get there? It's a very sort of artificial... You can choose one of these several things uh, that would take you there. But if they already know that the march is happening... They should just be wanting to go there um, rather than saying, well, some archons might be able to help you with this other problem. Now, I can see if you're sprinkling this into an ongoing campaign, uh, that, that makes perfect sense. But what doesn't make sense is after a while, if you do that, if you just repeatedly within some other separate campaign say, Oh, you know, you should go here. And Oh, by the way, this just so happens to be the time and the place that the Modron March is going through. Now it's, it's very artificial. It it doesn't feel like a campaign anymore. And sometimes the premise too is hard to carry across. So the, the concept here is that um, for whatever reason, the, the folks in Mount Celeste here in this, in this have built a town where the Modrons will go through. Mm-hmm. And I guess should have known that, but for some reason, even though these are like immortal beings, they forgot that, hey, mm-hmm. you know, in a hundred years, this is gonna get leveled. And of course it came early, so it was even more of a oopsie. Mm-hmm. And so the town of Heart's Faith now is in the path 
And I guess the, then we, what we learn is, well, these Modrons will just crush through it mm-hmm. and destroy it. And, and in fact, they don't even just go in a straight line. They sort of spread out <laughs> to yeah. maximum stamp, stompage of the town, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah. But we must go in a straight line, except when we decide we don't. I, I don't know. It's really weird. And yeah. so they're going to spread out through the city. And at some points, I, I guess they follow the route that they used to. And so they will sometimes be walking through a building. Right. And, and so they go not, through the building. Yeah. Or it's, through it's people. Terrible concept altogether, but it's the kind of thing where you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, I just have to believe this premise. Okay, they're, they're smashing this town. This is what they do. This is how they move. And then it's almost like a little series of skill challenge vignettes where you are facing off against like, oh, there's a bunch of, you know, mothers with children or there's a important museum. And, but the thing is, what solves it in each scene is up to the random choice of the designer Mm -hmm. rather than the logic of the scene. So in one scene, it might be that you can talk the Modrons out of it and another you can't. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the writer said so, you know, it's just, yeah. hmm. Yeah. It, it comes down to, well, first of all, we're told that, you know, these are thousands of Modrons, tens of thousands and they you know can be replaced when they die so you're not going to fight them especially at yeah. second third fourth level uh so you have to talk with them but they really don't want to talk with you the 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 uh, monodrones don't talk at all so you have to sort of work your way up to the and then even then once you get there you can't talk them out of anything unless you can like like Teos said, what all of these little, like Teos called the skill challenge vignettes comes down to is you can only move people out of the way to avoid the march. And then guess what I'm thinking in order to do that is, is yeah. sort of what it comes down to. And guess what I'm thinking is tough because you already have how a DM will individually do things, which, which will, but now you're kind of pushing onto the DM this responsibility for deciding whether something works or not, but you've written it such a thin, arbitrary way that you're sort of setting up your DM to fail and to create frustration. And sometimes there's a time pressure such that players could try to be, they could be trying to do the right thing, but because it's, they haven't guessed what the designer came up with. Oh no, sorry. You know, like people died, you know? Yeah. And, and with the lack of like a skill system, like we talked about, you know, how do you persuade people to leave their home when they don't want to? How do you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, use nature checks to figure out that you could do this or, or other mechanical game right. mechanical skills to, uh, to do it. And th- this was a perfect example of, of me getting my hopes up and then having them dashed. <laughs> the opening of this adventure says you should use a stopwatch to show that time is of the essence. I'm like, okay, cool. They're going to show me how to run like a skill challenge, but really fast using a stopwatch. So I read and I'm like waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. I get to the end of the adventure. I'm like, wait a second. They mentioned the stopwatch. Didn't they? Was this the one where they mentioned the stopwatch? And I go back and I'm like, yeah, they mentioned the stopwatch. And then there's absolutely no mention of like how much time you should give for each of these. Or And, and then what I thought was, you know, if this was play tested, these play testers should they have their D and D license revoked, because 
just a simple play test of this adventure would have shown all of these things that could have been, you know, papered over or sanded off or somehow brought back to the realm of helping a DM run it. And it just wasn't there. I just think that it was a different era where folks did not, they didn't see the game the same way. And so there was this idea that things were arbitrary and you just dealt with it and you sort of laughed it off. And because mm-hmm. the characters aren't really in danger in a lot of this adventure, it's right. more kind of what happens around you. And, and you're sort of, that's, that's part of the problem too, is that it's not a visceral experience in any, almost any of these adventures. Yeah. Uh, even when they pretend it is, it's really not. It, it's a little mm-hmm. bit like you're, you're, you know, you are a step removed from this, even yeah. when you're playing your character. Yeah. And I think that's something where we've advanced the science a bit to say, like, well, if if you are your character, how, what is this experience, and how do we make it cool and resonate? Yeah. And there's not a lot of that here. Well, it, we'll it, see. Yeah. You know, one I, thing that I do like, right, to be a little positive, is that they clearly set out to paint a very varying picture of the Modrons depending on the scenes. And so this one, and they, and they tell you that they communicate that well, right? Where they say, you know, in this one, you're going to try to be stopping them and they'll look like a terrible horde. And a challenge you'll have is later you're going to have to save them. Uh, so, so try to kind of, you know, keep it a little bit flexible of, of making clear they understand the why of the situation Right. And that modrons are sort of weird and hard to comprehend. Yeah. But will, you know, <laughs> later we're going to see that there are times when you befriend them. It's like, oh, okay. Right, and, interesting. And I'm glad they said that. Well, I'm glad they said that too. And then I'm like, boy, tell me how to do that. When in chapter two, they could literally kill 200 orphans because they're not going to change the path that they take through through this realm. So if you don't get the the orphans out of the orphanage in time, there's 200 dead orphans. Oh, but in chapter three, you have to save the Modrons. And I'm like, I could tell you right now that if I was playing with most of the players that I've dealt with over a long period of time, as soon as chapter two was done, they would never help a Modron again as long as they lived. Right. No matter how expertly... I tried to make the killing of the orphans seem reasonable. Did I just say that? Was that a sentence Mm -hmm. I just said? Mm -hmm. Uh, That the next chapter was, okay, now this evil group is capturing some of the Modrons, tearing their body parts off in order to do experiments and gain power through grafting those body parts onto other creatures. Uh, And how they do that, First, we're we're basically told this Modron March is unstoppable. These creatures are all, you know, they all work together. They're immune to fear. They're immune to things that affect their minds. They're they're basically unstoppable. In chapter three, these things that are, that are immune to fear, well, in this one case, they're not. And so they're scared and then they're captured. And no, no one stops them because the rest of the Modrons are just going to continue to march. And even if a few of them are taken away, that doesn't stop them. And I'm yeah, like, this is more of that arbitrary stuff, right? Yeah. Like because so they'll sort of say, like, well, because the low level Modrons sort of need to turn to the superiors for what to do, and currently they're supposed to march. So then by kind of hit and run tactics, these ambushers can grab a mod a few modrons and take them away and then these yeth hounds with this fear effect and 
It's a little, it's quite weird. And, and this is actually yeah. like sort of, I think the cover of what this adventure is supposed to depict is sort of the scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you, should we stop here and come back and, and cover some other chapters next time? Probably. Um, I can't promise that I will, <laughs> but I could promise that I consider doing so. I mean, there are some interesting chapters in here with some uh, yeah. interesting pieces, but but yeah, yeah I, I don't want yeah. to go too long on this one. Yeah, we'll 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 try to come back and and with a more positive spin, highlight some mm. of the interesting uh, situations that are set up uh, in in this adventure. All right. So thank you for listening. I hope uh, everyone enjoyed it, even if it wasn't <laughs> the most uh, positive explanation of this adventure. And we're going to find a really good adventure next. Yes. Uh, so thank you to our listeners and thank you also to our patrons. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find you? Find me and all the things I do at alphastream.org. You can also find me on Twitter at alphastream. Sean, where can I find you when I'm hunting you down? You can find me attached to my chair. But if you're online, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can find the podcast Twitter feed at Mastering D&D. And we're also on YouTube. So you can leave comments on our YouTube channel. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, we're halfway through the great Modron March. What are we going to do now? <laughs> we are going to assimilate. <laughs> they do have a very Dalek feel. I got it with yeah, that. <laughs>